Right now, it's Six Music's deep dive into OK Computer. We signed to a major record company. We were working in a world back then where if you make a record, you go to a studio. It's a thousand pounds a day, but no pressure, right? <laughs> when it's going well, it's such an exciting and up and happy time that that gets you through anything, really. It's only torturous looking back. And then gradually realizing, actually, no, you don't have to do it like this. The technology you choose to use and how you choose to use it is part of your art and should be in your hands. It was a really exciting time. It's like that thing when a band gets into its kind of momentum and inertia. It's almost like whatever you put into it, it sort of comes out okay. It was a, a very intense year. There were joyous moments in it where that sense of having started this band at school and it has realised what it did that year. You know, a feeling that actually in the playing we were kind of getting to where we wanted to be. This is a really interesting story really because it's the story of, uh, you know, young people discovering that they have control and uh, sort of being able to run with this thing and, you know, we did it our way, you know, that's the story, basically. I think it's that ignorance and self-confidence. It's when you're in your early 20s, you don't have any fears, you don't have any mortality, you've just got this excitement and energy about all the stuff that you absorbed when you were at school and college and stuff. We just went off and did it ourselves and we didn't realise the implications of any of it. Just listening to it now, I just hear how powerful the songs are. And I mean, this is the thing that we got to remember at the end of the day, is the album is about the songs and everything else is just a frame. You know, what I'm trying to do is just, uh, sonically, I'm trying to frame his voice. And what everybody else is trying to do is support his voice. So it's it's this equation that adds up to being a vehicle for the songs. It's as simple as that. It's the same with any kind of vocal music, you know. And uh, that's what made it work. BBC Radio, Six Music. My name's Nigel Godrich. I am a record producer, or a musician, I would say, now, as things have changed. I met these guys when I worked at a studio in London called Rack in St John's Wood. I had been working there sort of three and a half years, and it was an amazing place to be, actually, for me. At that age, I was very young, I was 20 when I started, and it was just basically bands coming in, making records for a couple of months, shipping out, another band come in, making records, shipping out and I used to work with this producer really really great producer called John Leckie and we did all sorts of stuff we worked on a ride record I worked on loads and loads of different things with him recording and mixing and learned an awful lot from him and then one day he said uh, oh do you want to do Radiohead and I was thought well sure I mean I didn't know who they were I'd seen him once actually I think I'd seen him on Raw Soup with Miranda Sawyer magazine show where they played Creep and then Tom was interviewed very awkwardly and he didn't really come over very well. That was my feeling at the time. So anyway, I was like, okay, fine. But um, these guys showed up and they were really lovely, really bright and bushy-tailed and uh, very enthusiastic and obviously like a great band, like really, really instant. Like it's kind of, you know, the reason that you... Working with bands is fun because for the same reason that watching a band is fun, it's, it's like a bunch of people that you want to be with, you know, you want to be in that situation with these people because it's a kind of like a human desire isn't it to hang out with other people yeah we got into that record we got into recording and I was engineering John was producing and it went very well it was a very difficult time for them 
they had a lot of pressure because they'd uh, really only had one hit as it was, which was Creep, and they had a record label breathing down their neck trying to find another, you know, hit single. And that sort of was not where they were, clearly. They were a lot more kind of uh, refined than that. We obviously clicked in some way, and when John went away, he went to a uh, he went to a wedding or something. He had to go away and do something, and we were left. And traditionally, what happens is when when there's a little bit of downtime with a big project like that, you do some B sides, you just do some recording. So they and I were left alone to to just have a bash around for a couple of days, and we did some songs that were for B sides, and it was just such a blast. It really was because we were all the same age at the same place in our lives, really, as well as the careers. You know, I was very ambitious, they were very ambitious, clearly. And uh, I was actually really on my game, you know, I was good, I mean, I can say that. I think uh, I was very fortunate to be put in the same room as them and they were fortunate to be put in the same room as me because I was ready and lo locked and loaded and we did these tracks. One of them ended up being good enough to be put on the record, so that was the Black Star was supposed to be a B-side. It was my first production credit, it was my first kind of, uh, like, little thing where I got my name on the back that actually meant something to me. So that was cool. So in the run-up to recording this record, were you feeling quite um, vindicated by the success of the Benz in the end? Because you went through, there was a period in Radiohead's life where, um, you know, it was virtually hard getting arrested for a while. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Critically. It was, I don't know, um, I mean, when we made it, you know, it was a make or break thing. It was totally terrifying every single day. And then when people sort of come up after that, and how deeply they're affected by it, it's sort of a bit amazing, really, because you know all the things that you that went into it and you know the way you had to pay for it. The fact that you live and breathe this thing and people are sort of not interested or not listening or expecting something else or you, you can't sort yourself out and you... And, you know, all that record, it was all in the record, all in the notes in the record. And so when people started coming up to us saying, well, this, this record really... Um, help me, blah, blah, blah. It was just the best possible thing that could happen. Not really vindication, because vindication sort of implies kind of revenge, you know? Mm. Um, and it wasn't like that. It was more, well, yeah, thanks. Did you find that there, there was a lot of people uh, writing you letters and things at that point? Yeah, um, and they were really cool letters as well. But um, the weird thing about it is when it was like, OK, we've got to, we've got to do the next record, you discover that we we discovered that that um, there were a lot of things that were obviously we didn't like about it. Mm. Um, you know, this, you know that there's that thing about you have to hate what you've done before to to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And and I think the reason that we um, even got into the idea of making another album was when we went to do B sides and stuff when we did that that the lucky track and that was all oh, right, cool, we have a life, you know, this is, this is, we're still going. I mean, there's this really paralysing moment after you finish an album where you think, right, that's it, I'm never going to write again, or whatever. The other thing is that we weren't really talking to each other. I mean, it, it like we did on the bands. Yeah. And we actually realised that you actually quite like the other people in the band and blah, mm. blah, blah. The album came out and they went on tour, and about a year later, I w went to see them play at the Forum in Kentish Town. 
which is my old local venue because I grew up in Tufnell Park, so that's exactly where I sort of would go and see bands when I was a kid. Anyway, I remember it being a really good show, and then I remember very, very vividly at the after show going upstairs and standing in this room full of people having a drink, and the sort of it felt like the kind of crowd parted, and Tom, I saw Tom walking towards me, and he shook my hand. He said, "Oh, we were going to call you because uh, we were going to ask you if you'd record us in our rehearsal room." I was like, "Oh, great! Of course I would." So we had this little short conversation about it and then I got a call from their management and we started talking about what that meant and what was possible and that was sort of the beginning of OK Computer really. You know I'd met them in a studio in London which they had found really difficult, found it very very hard to walk into a recording studio and just feel comfortable you know why would anybody you know it's your second album you're being told that you're going to be dropped if you don't lay another golden egg what you really want to do is get away get somewhere really quiet personal private that you feel comfortable with and just do your method and work out what you know what it is you need to do and they were feeling really comfortable and confident in this space so i think their logical thought was why can't we record here luckily enough their manager chris hufford he's himself an engineer producer he understood what was possible so he knew that that could happen so that was their question to me would you consider trying to do that and to me that's red red to a bull i'm like you know i love that kind of challenge anyway i'm absolutely feel the same way about studios i don't really like them you know i've had so much success just rolling into dirty old scooby-doo mansions full of crap coming out with amazing recordings vibes feelings but conversely going into the newest most polished you know top flight facilities in the world and you take it home and it sounds like crap so to me you know, it's all about spirit, it's all about the feeling anyway. You know, where you want to record is where you feel comfortable. You want to be somewhere that's your space, not a space that's been used by a thousand other people before and uh, bears the scars of that, unless that's something that you're really looking for. But I don't think that's, uh, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for very much my own thing. And I know that they made a good call, I think, by, by saying, let's try and record ourselves, let's try and hide away. Radiohead were also very smart because they had it written into their deal that they had to have a final say on anything that was released, which basically translates into full creative control because the label can't release something that they don't like. So basically they sort of bought this time to be able to just go away and do what they wanted to do in the way that they wanted to do it. Even though they talked about their rehearsal space, they'd actually just moved rehearsal space to another new space that was really out in the middle of nowhere and out in the middle of the countryside in Oxfordshire that was an old Apple store. And uh, they have incredible tech that's worked with them from the beginning called Peter Clements, uh, affectionately known as Plank, who had found this place and he was the kind of gatekeeper, master keeper of all the equipment and all of the stuff. He had sort of taken all their gear there and, and it was all set up in a way. It was just like a big cork lined room that had a little, you know, a sign on the door that said, if you shut this door and go inside, you'll you'll die within five minutes because you'll run out of air, you know, that sort of thing. But it was a it was a, just a big box and uh, Plank had put some, uh, a little bit of treatment in there, but it was pretty straight ahead. They'd also got the unit next to it as well. So my big idea, was to go and buy the equipment that they needed to record. Um, so, you know, back in those days, you could go and see a guy who would like just find everything for you, source it, and this guy, Andy Hilton, he used to run a company. So, you know, we bought a tape machine, a desk, uh, some mics and compressors, the things that I just said, this is what you need. And, you know, obviously it was like kid in the candy store for me. I was just like, sure, you're gonna get this stuff up? Fine, great, this is what you want. In actual fact, it was money well spent because that equipment is still what we use now. Almost of it is in use anyway, I'd say. It's a good economy because it, you could spend that money in a studio or you can spend it on your studio. 
The first sessions for OK Computer were actually on the weekend before my 25th birthday. Like the day I left, I drove off to go to my 25th birthday party, you know, it was, it was that long ago, believe it or not. But the first songs that we actually tried to record for OK Computer were Lift, Nude, and Big Boots. You know, these things which then, none of that got released, and then sat around for 20 odd years. Nude, obviously, eventually Colin wrote this amazing bass line, and it became the song kind of found its moment. I suppose the thing to remember is that material can sit around for a while waiting for its window, you know? And uh, it's always kind of being, especially with this band as well. I mean, this band, this is really my only reference point because this is the band that I know the best and the ones that I've, you know, see so regularly and have been in and out of studios and played so many different songs over and over the years. Watch them kind of regurgitate things and things kind of be moved around in the air and turned over and changed. And obviously the Big Boots ended up getting released because we thought it was going to be used for a James Bond movie. And then Lift is the one that at the time it was one of those things where you have a record label saying this is a big hit or somehow that pressure just kind of turns into a reason why it never gets finished because it's just too much gravitas attached to it and it can never really be you know trying to find a definitive version of something a recorded definitive version of something is very difficult and if there's a lot of pressure especially people breathing down someone's neck and i think that song as well it was very kind of for tom i think it was very important so you know we must have tried to record it like five or six times at least and that was one of the first. Anyway, so we set up in this room and I remember thinking, I hope this works. <laughs> but they, they'd been working in this room, just rehearsing normally. It was like a setup, like a rehearsal room. And really all I did is I got the gear in the control room side, as it were, drilled a hole in the wall and put the cables through and they turned their amps towards the wall just to get a little bit of isolation. And uh, I mucked everything up, got it all going and hit record and said, let's see what happens. And we did maybe three months there, you know, taking it slowly, working through the stuff and getting a feel for it. But I mean, this is all we were doing with our lives. You know, it was very much a kind of focus. What was funny was the first day that I showed up to the studio, on my way in, I was driving through Chiswick and uh, I saw Scott Walker on his bike, which I can spot because I know what he looks like these days because I, you know, he'd been in the studio, whatever, I'd spent a couple of days with him, this, that and the other. But when I, um, when I got to the fruit farm where we were recording, Tom had two records he had Pet Sounds and he had Scott Four. And I was like, oh, I just, I just saw Scott in Chiswick cycling through. That's a good omen. We're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. I've seen a hand. I've seen a vision. It was reaching through the clouds to risk a dream. A shadow across the sky. And it crushed it to the ground Just like a beast The old man's back again The old man's back again I seen a woman 
It was pretty rudimentary. There was no toilet. I mean, obviously, it was like uh, back in the day, it had been a big fruit picking facility. There was cherry trees. You drive into this place and you drive through like a little maze of cherry trees and get to this this building. Uh, very innocuous. It was just a farmer who decided to start renting out these spaces, and there was a lot of people like you know fixing cars and painting stuff, or whatever. And then there was our bit. The toilets were the sort of like you know what would have been for field workers in their breaks you know it was just a kind of stall over the other side of the courtyard you'd have to go and walk out and go and find it. it was pretty chill and then as well at the same time you know if we're going to go out to abingdon for a meal i mean i think we went to pizza express probably about 200 times you know then literally that was the only option that and a really bad curry that's what i can remember the fruit farm worked it served its purpose very very well and we felt isolated we felt away from the world and everyone was just very excited and we were certainly like hungry and eager to to do this thing right and i think like i say we were all the same age and all just very ambitious and i had my ideas of what i wanted to do you know i have all i always just saved saved all my best ideas for this band you know what about um lyrically do you keep notes or what, what? yeah i got I, I sort of keep notebooks all the time that was the weird thing is um i was looking at ones from from like 1990 and and there was sort of a good a good section in that which was sort of three lines from um, climbing up the walls. And that was a bit terrifying, really, because you sort of think, well, maybe I'm just going around in circles. <laughs> but um, it's the only thing that I learned from art college for any use at all was 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 to keep notes because um, well, it was the only thing I was capable of doing at art college because I couldn't draw anyway. But um, <laughs> you know, and and it worked. Do you have a more serious quality controlled almost now? Yeah, it's bit. It was. It, it, I mean, the only thing I regret about OK Computer is the is the fact that the quality control was was hysterical. It was mm. it was over the top. Mm. The reason it was over the top is because we felt we had a lot to live up to, and it was, you know, utterly terrifying. Most of the time, it's funny. Then mm. the ten percent of the time, it was totally, totally terrifying. Everything got played at the fruit farm. You know, there's a version of Paranoid Android, but it doesn't really have an outro. You know, it's sort of like, it kind of starts and it's like a performance, a bit more like they just play it live, but then just kind of goes into this sort of swirling outro that goes nowhere. And what happens in the studio is that you, you hone in on things and you start focusing more and working out what has to happen and making it make sense. And that process took a little bit longer, like with that song, because it was at that stage where it wasn't quite done yet. Other things that happened at the fruit farm were really, really important. First time I pressed record, we uh, recorded No Surprises, we recorded this backing track that later, after recording it another three times, we went back and listened to the first time we this, this original recording and you could just feel the magic was there. It was just there at the time, but we were just starting to get the flywheel moving, you know, we were just getting our momentum together, so... But certain other things got caught, managed to catch them. The Tourist is from there, you know, I mean, electioneering, love it or hate it, it's from there. But yeah, Fruit Farm is really important, Subterranean, that was recorded there. A lot of these backing tracks that just came out, fell out and felt really good. Some other things just were still, you know, hadn't figured them out yet, but so it was like a rehearsal as well. So it's exactly what needed to happen because it meant that when things did fall out in rehearsal stages and felt really, really good, we managed to catch them. So we did the, the farm experience and everyone agreed how great it had gone, but thought that we had done enough kind of self-flagellation and maybe it was time we went somewhere that had a toilet, you know, just as a kind of special treat for being so well behaved and achieving something. So the uh, long uh, search for another venue started. Chris Hufford, manager, and I went off to the south of France looking for uh, a place to 
to record. That was one idea. We had a couple of days driving around in a rickety old Renault 5 of our French agents and saw a few things, but nothing really kind of gelled. Meanwhile, I think Tom and Colin had gone to see uh, St. Catherine's Court in Bath, which was owned by Jane Seymour, as in Dr. Quinn Medicine and Jane Seymour, live and let die. An incredible place. I mean, it turned out to be it was shown to us because people had used it as a recording, well, the cure had recorded there. I think subsequently people kept recording there because it obviously worked really well. But the cure had worked there and um, the people that sold us the gear knew that because they'd done the install for them. I mean, the building, I should say, was Elizabethan. There was a room there that by repute, Henry VIII's illegitimate daughter had died in childbirth in the bed. There was wood panelling everywhere. It was really kind of spooky, but beautiful. It had an enormous ballroom in it with a massive medieval tapestry on the wall. It was like, you know, that kind of gorgeous latticework windows at one end. It was very vibey and it had this library that was just next to the ballroom, which was sort of an ideal space to set up a listening room, set up the control room. And the cure, this is where they'd done it. And they'd, the cure had put this kind of room within a room there. And I just thought, you know what? That just sounds horrible. Let's just stick our stuff in it. So we did. We just moved in and it was a room with our recording equipment in it. And uh, it worked great. We did two three-week stints there. And the first one was predominantly us getting more backing tracks. The idea being that what you try and do is get as much of a live performance as possible in a room with everybody playing. And then you can go and uh, do the things that you need to do, spend some extra time. Maybe there's some extra overdubs. Maybe you want to change your part, so you redo the bass. And then you do the vocals, you know, focus in on those things. But honestly, 99 times out of 100, if you can get it live, that's what's got the spirit. That's what's got the feeling. And this incredible ballroom situation was just a great place to, to play, and it sounded really good. So we just set up and did a lot of takes of songs let down or climbing up the walls or you know these songs that just kind of came to life and really kind of got nailed in that space and it was you know a lot of stuff at night i had like a night vision camera with a uh, on a tv so i could watch them so airbag um tom which is one of your choices you want us to yeah. play that one of your favorites from the album um yeah it's my favorite because it's it's kind of like the only song that we've ever written that you can dance to well, I think you can dance to it. Other people look incredulous when I say that, but it's got that the sort of sound like uh, I used to when I was at university. I used to go to this club and um, they had these speakers that were they were I swear they were all broken, and they used to play Fool's Gold incredibly loud. And uh, I wanted a track that sounded like that. And what we're also going to do tonight is uh, try and force you to tell us where you ripped some of the ideas off for this album. Yeah. So, um, airbag. Was there a particular that sound was... apart from the roses that you're trying to get, or somewhere where you went and thought that's quite good? I think um, it was it was a deep homage to uh, the DJ Shadow album. I really really get off on on when when Phil just plays on his own and he's he's mucking around, mm. and I, I'm endlessly taping it. Is there quite a lot of um, tracks that sort of end up with just little snippets of things which you've done in rehearsal, or someone's been doing just fiddling around while they're sort of checking the guitar? We tend to write a lot more like that now, because you have that thing where. I think when you, you start out, everything is new and, and everything sounds great and you have this real energy. And, and nowadays, we tend to write where, where people are just mucking around and um, we, we, we have this thing where everybody has tape recorders and they all take them home. And <laughs> what, homework? Like, yeah, it's really yeah. sad, actually. Is it? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like miles and miles and miles of tape. Where would you get to hear something like Shadow for the first time? James Lavelle uh, did a show at this club called The Zodiac. 
I, I, I sort of met him. I don't know. I can't work out how I met him, and, and um, it was like a mutual appreciation society for the rest of the night. Airbag is, is like based around a lot of drum parts that Phil wrote that we then sampled and I we had a pretty typical MIDI sampler set up at the time, you know, with a sequencer and all this stuff. And um, basically the rest of us left Tom and him for about a day as they kind of sequenced the kind of the drum part, you know, to the arrangement of the song. And that was basically the, the starting block for the genesis of that recording of that track. And the reason to do it like that was to give it this kind of uh, feeling of like sort of rough kind of, not like hip hop, that's a very kind of like lame way of putting it, but just to give it a kind of programmed kind of thing to retain the kind of notion of loops and the feeling that you get when you have repetition, but like be able to kind of sculpt it into something proper. So having got that kind of framework can then start sort of, it was built up piece by piece and one of the early things that happened was just this kind of like processing of the drums. We stuck it through Johnny's pedal board. And when you stick it all together, you get this kind of, it's like a beast that's alive, you know, it really, really changes it. It makes something that can be sort of feel quite sort of on one level, suddenly have a lot of life. But this song is interesting because it, it took a long time to get it done. It was working out how to sort of make it really dynamic was a challenge. And I think an important moment beyond that was basically Colin played this kind of start stoppy kind of bass line thing that was really rough and all over the place, but just absolutely visceral and just responding to this kind of feeling of energy rushes. And it's remained <laughs> a sort of like sketch basically all the way through the recording until the very end where we just like by osmosis had turned into a proper part and he re-recorded it but I think that that's like one of the very important things about this this song is you know it has this really really unusual approach as a, as a baseline we, we had this aborted session actually at what was this place called the church the studio in Muswell Hill that I'm trying to mix there and it just wasn't happening but we came away with this finalized baseline that Colin had come up with that was just so exciting and also they had this thing called a Kurzweil which had this choir sound in it that's very famous like been used in like, sort of you know craft work and new order records that you would recognize and we used it on airbag and it just like really kind of gives this that outro that the, the way the dynamic like uh, build at the end of the outro really gives it this kind of like crazy like darkness but like mechanized and it's really powerful I think. The other thing I remember about that song is being at the studio where we were mixing with Johnny and I having a breakfast, sort of like planning our intervention because Tom was insisting that we left out the main rhythm guitar, which would have meant that you couldn't have known what the chords were, <laughs> which was clearly a really bad idea. But he was on one of his kind of angular, you know, he was trying to make things difficult for the listener, which was maybe just not the right thing. Oh, and then the uh, sleigh bells of the very last edition, a kind of charming little wink, you could say.
Android. Android is probably the hardest, <laughs> the kind of biggest sort of bite of the whole thing, really. And when we were in uh, the fruit farm, this song existed and we tried to record it. But it was recording it as a band in a room. It was just too linear, you know. It had musical sections, but nothing really changed. I mean, obviously, they were still working it out, but particularly the outro just didn't really have any kind of... Nothing happens, you know. And uh, particularly um, just trying to get that kind of steadiness, that kind of groove for the whole song. It's just so important. It wasn't supposed to be rocky. It was supposed to be kind of like get you moving. And like, so we had hit a brick wall and hit a brick wall and hit a brick. It was just really, really difficult at St. Catherine's. And I just thought Tom was in a foul mood and gone to bed and sort of left us. We were still in the studio. Everybody else was still there. And I just, with Phil, we just... Played the beat, 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 just to try and get that kind of groove. And I just found a bit and took it out, chopped it up, looped it, played the second part, played the second part. Just we just we just sort of focused in on just trying to get this definitive thing. So at least we'd have a first step we could move forward, you know, something really, really strong. And so yeah, did it. I you know, I had the drum part. And one of the most important people of who taught me how to do what I do is this guy Phil Thornelli, who done so many amazing recordings in the past and one of the things he used to talk to whether you love it or hate it he did these thompson twins records and he used to talk about how they'd have a lindrum on and then they would do live percussion and that's how you kind of get a feel to something so i said to the guys all right we've got this uh really groovy like drum loop in the middle but it's basically static so we need to kind of give it some life so everybody went out into the blackness on my monitor i could watch them and uh we did a couple of passes of very kind of loose percussion latin percussion you know in the kind of spirit of like this is going nowhere and um you know lo and behold it kind of really gives it something and so i was like okay this is actually worth pursuing and uh got johnny to lay down the rhythm guitar with the first like musical element and it was clear that it was going to work. It just had this little vibe. It was great. And at that point, Tom comes trudging down from upstairs and tells us all to shut up because he's trying to sleep. So uh, that got knocked on the head until the next day when we sort of showed him what we've been doing. He's like, oh, OK, I see what's happening here. So he could put his guitar down and start. But that was just the very first section up to um, Ambition Makes You Look Pretty Ugly. And uh, then we had to build it from uh, taking a, an edit section, kicking, screaming, onwards and doing the guitar solos and stuff all the way to the middle so we did that nicely and it was such a difference because of the way that those things those pieces of those recordings were done in such different ways so you had that kind of like real lift you know so we had that and while at the same time while we were in that mode we did the outro it's easy you just like blasted it out got a really good one of those and then it was just this kind of what do we do for the middle what do we do for the middle and that was built completely separately and uh just again, just built around a little kind of drum performance. And we were talking about the choir and we had uh, looked for, um, I think what had happened actually was the, the son of the guy who invented the Mellotron was starting to remake them and recondition them. And we'd gotten hold of uh, the the Mellotron that had originally owned belonged to Tangerine Dream. <laughs> so it was kind of fantastic, this like big white thing that was in perfect working condition, but also had like one key with an entire bit of a Tangerine Dream song on it because they used to tour with it and they used to that's how they used to do things that were impossible on stage. Pretty clever, really. Early sample, I should say Mellotron is like a very early, well, it's a keyboard that has tapes playing on it. So there's some famous sounds, like the choir sound is very famous and every key is a different note, it's a bunch of people singing uh, 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 and that's how you put it together and it sounds, it doesn't sound like a choir, but it also doesn't sound like a keyboard. It just sounds like something really unearthly, uh, which was perfect. So that's on the middle of 
Paranoid Android, and I managed to stitch it all together onto one piece of 24-track tape using my crappy 8-track Pro Tools over and over again, and, you know, it's an edit that actually really works. The other memory that I have from that was when it gets to the outro and there's uh, basically it's just a rock-out guitar solo to the end. There's sort of something missing, you know, there's nothing, I mean, there's no kind of, like, representation of a human being there. And Tom was like, uh, okay, hold on a minute. And he went off, he took his dictaphone and he went next door and I could just sort of like hear vaguely, just kind of like, <laughs> like barking, screaming sound. And um, he's like, okay, uh, let's just play the tape and put this over the top of it. And you can hear it in the background. There's like some moaning. <laughs> a little factoid, the beginning part, obviously is sequenced and the boops at the beginning, uh, the count. <laughs> and then the last, it goes boop, boop boop and the last boop has tom saying boop over it if you listen out for it carefully you'll hear that it's a nice little human touch there
Uh, so Subterranean was another early success from the fruit farm, from our recordings in their rehearsal space. Basically, just a backing track. It was a good performance from Phil and just had this really amazing swing and we just, we just had it, you know. The thing I remember about this is, um, you know, every so often you get a new toy or a new instrument would show up or something and you have a certain amount of kind of uh, just immediate value you get out of things. And the thing that showed up while we were doing Subterranean was uh, Fender Rhodes. So that showed up at the studio and it was like, oh, this is really cool, let's use it. So what you have on that track is um, Tom plays up until the second verse and then it's Johnny. They're both having a go. And you can hear this, this style's change, it changes dramatically, you know. But it was magic, it was like, ah, oh, you know, like one of those really lovely moments of like something just working very well and being very easy. Yeah, I mean, as a song, it's pretty straight ahead. That's the song I remember him playing when we were recording the Benz. There was one night when we did uh, Fake Plastic Trees where he just sat out there and just did this performance after going to see Jeff Buckley. I slept on the sofa because I was so knackered, but they all went off to see Jeff Buckley. They came back and they recorded, um, well, Tom just sat and recorded Fake Plastic Trees on his own and um, did two takes and there was like one take was just amazing apart from one line that I fixed whatever but then we spent the rest of the night he's sitting there going through his little notebook like playing his new songs he's working on and Subterranean was one of them he just sat there like going through like singing the lyrics it's like it's just amazing I mean Show me the world as I love to see 
the evening session on Radio 1 and here we are with uh, Phil, Colin and Johnny from the band and uh, that track is uh, sort of a sub-aqua sound. Where did uh, you come across that? We were actually vaguely trying to copy um, Miles Davis on his album Bitches Brew although we don't have a trumpet player or any or are very good at jazz or improvising but it was trying to copy the atmosphere of all the electric pianos and the and this sort of echoey echoey room sound and it's you know, trying to be dirty and funky a little bit, a bit like um, Bitches Brew. Okay, so when you're making this record, did you ever worry as you were going through that you'd run out of different ideas? No, you'd sort of get caught up in it, and um, the future doesn't really concern you doing what we do. Do you get all the sort of guitar magazines and musicians' magazines coming to you <laughs> and asking you all the time, how do you get that sound and sort of dissecting what you do? Yeah, a lot. Um, I, I, I find them kind of depressing publications, really. Um, which, which, uh, I bet, I bet they hone in on you, though, Johnny. It, it does happen. I don't know. It's, it's a bit peculiar. It's like sort of reading about paintbrushes or, or whatever. It's, you know, it doesn't really, it's not very interesting, is it, really? Exit Music, basically, they'd said that they'd been asked to do the, the music for this Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo and Juliet, the end credits. And um, when we were, I think it might have even been when we were doing, trying to do a bit of Paranoid Android... <laughs> Tom, in a particularly fraught moment, he was in another room with his acoustic guitar and a mic, just sat there, and he was just sort of trying to let off some steam, just trying to cool, you know, in, in the midst of takes, trying to get something, whatever, you know. He just said, oh, can you just record this? And he rattled off three takes of exit music. And one of those is just like, okay, that's that. That's that song. Which we then would come back to. But I know that the idea of the sound of it is based on this um, Folsom Prison Blues. It's a Johnny Cash record, so he made this record in prison, and it's basically, uh, he's in a room with a bunch of inmates, they're all talking, and he's just playing, everything goes quiet. And when he sings, it's just so loud. It's like disarming. Oh, come all you young fellers, so young and so fine Seek not your fortune In the dark dreary mine It'll form as a habit And seep in your soul Till the stream of your blood Runs as black as the coal and what a powerful thing that is. So that was the idea, was to sort of, without it being sort of jarring, to kind of like make that voice so big, because that's that entry is so important, you know? The thing is, it's really easy to have a moment where like bass and drums come in, but like to make it a sort of smack around your face when somebody just opens their mouth, it's far, it's, that's the most powerful thing you can do. And it's just such a kind of delicate balance trying to get the, the measure of quiet versus loud, you know? That's like, that's, that's a good, that's a good trick if you get it right. But this was like a one take thing. That's a one take performance which is not always the case but that in this instance it was i think the the kind of one of the breakthroughs in that song having built it up i mean we, we we the backing track and recording the drums on a, on a live acoustic take is quite difficult and it was it was an interesting uh, you know challenge but it was fine it was just a lot of editing and um, but what i did actually what was cool about st Catharines as well is like we had this big ballroom and all these places we set up but like right at the top of the of the house right at the top there was a children's nursery that was the most, it was like a padded cell. It was basically just wall to wall, nothing was hard. There was no hard surfaces and it was filled with like children's toys, you know, obviously 
Jane Seymour has two daughters and they've got a lot of stuffed animals apparently. So I set up the kit up there and on my hands and knees got mics up there and everything did what I had to do so that he could hear what was going on. And it's this classic thing it's just like a sort of two mic drum sound. It's like the kind of biggest drum sound ever from being like the smallest kind of technically. I just sound it works really, really well. So it's a big moment. And then um, the sound under the Sing Us a Song thing is uh, it's a sound from a playground that Tom recorded on his mini disc of kids playing that he wanted to put in there. a song, a song to keep us warm, yeah, such a chill, such a chill.
Going to somewhere like St. Catharines was to kind of have an incredible experience. You know, everyone was just having this amazing time being in this crazy house that like something we'd never been to, seen before. Especially a North London little barrow boy like myself. I mean, I definitely, it's a lot for me. No, I mean, this place had like a, a croquet lawn, you know, so we were like playing croquet by moonlight, uh, you know, Victorian dipping pool. It had horses, you know, it had all the, it was, it was so beautiful. And just set in the most beautiful English countryside. It really was like quite a extraordinary, extraordinary setting as well. So it, obviously that feeds into what you're doing. Head Down is like, um, again, it was a really, really hard one to, to, to nail, but it started from an amazing backing track that we got at St. Catharines in that room. And um, yeah, just has such a beauty to it because of the cross rhythms and the way that the, um, you know, the, the parts play over each other rhythmically. They're in different time signatures and stuff. So great. And then it comes to sort of trying to sing it and nail the vocal and the trouble started really. It was very difficult because it, it works, but then, well, two things happened. There was a sort of feeling from Tom. I just think he just didn't, you know, he just didn't feel very confident. Like the last verse, I think it was just one of those things that we tried a few different ways. And um, we had two sort of complete separate performances of it that worked kind of, but were not good enough or didn't feel like they carried enough weight so it kind of hit a bit of an impasse and uh, there was some head scratching and you know short tempered words and this that and the other i mean i remember recording the vocals beautifully beautiful because it, there was an orangery outside in the garden this like beautiful glass structure and i set him up in there and he was like it was like a real kind of fantastic scenario and it worked it got something out of it it was just more i think structurally to the discussion was about the structure of the song and what was going to happen vocally and melodically and how that kind of how we got to the end they felt it was much too long anyway the way that we solved it in the end was because in the third verse basically one version of that vocal just goes off and he soars off, you know, you know where we are, you know where you are, you know you are. Uh, the solution was to put both of these vocals in. Basically, that was how it worked. So they're not, those two that are left and right, they're not supposed to be sung together. It's not really like an intentional thing. It's just a way of sort of, it just seemed to work. It was like, okay, this is a solution to a problem because something really unusual happens again. And I just realized that again when I was just listening to it, walking over here, it's like, it's very unexpected. And what happens is you suddenly are focused in on one. You can hear something very clearly that, you shouldn't be able to, you know, it's almost like a kind of like a magnifying glass moves over to this corner and you just focus in here and then something else joins again and it's like it all adds up to something. It kind of spins this kind of momentum into movement. The other thing I should say is that even after we'd figured that out and after we had it finished, Tom and Johnny would, they wanted to fade it out in the instrumental. They just wanted it to fade and be finished there before you get to the third verse. And the rest of us are like, what's the matter with you, you know? So that was a fight because it was felt it was too long. But yeah, to me, I'm like, that's the moment of release. But that was, that was the, I was thinking about this. It's like, it's crazy, but that was the, you know, just the feeling that it was like, oh, okay, maybe it's just, just, it's just a perfect place to, to fade out. The other thing about this, this was a moment where um, 
Johnny wrote a little piece of software to do random notes in the right um, mode that we um, recorded and flew in, sprinkled over the very outro. So there's that at the very end, you can hear it. But the funny thing is that we recorded the sound of the program being saved because that's how you would record it with the emulator. You have to record the audio file in order to load and save this program that you know made these generated these notes and the sound of that if everybody anyone who's ever again of a certain age who's at a zx spectrum they know what that sounds like if you listen to the beginning of the middle of uh, letdown you can hear it saving you can hear the program in the background because it's a tone it just goes so that's in there as well because at the end of the whole process we did actually write a little program a little computer program on the ZX Spectrum that was maybe going to be included somewhere and it never did but it's we we dug it up and it's in the kind of reissue I think the okay not okay reissue they found it and uh, put it there and it just sort of says with love from all of us and scrolls our name and stuff it's kind of cute
In the universe, there wasn't a lot of computers in studios yet. Uh, like I say, you know, the fact I had a Mac and could chop up a load of drums, you know, that was that was cutting edge really at the time. What it meant was you needed to have this quite intense education and knowledge about using tape machines to be able to run a studio on your own. Like it's a bit like flying a plane, you know, there's a lot of stuff you need to know because you can screw it up and it'll just it just won't work, you know. So me, that's just my brain, I'm very technical. I I like I'm interested in machinery and machines and I understand how they work and I enjoy that sort of thing. I like breaking them. I like the sounds they make when you break them. That's kind of my shtick, you know? We didn't have any computers in the first you know, version of the Radiohead studio it was just a tape machine. It also meant that the band couldn't hear what they just recorded unless I was there, which was fantastic. It meant in the long run, they'd be waking me up at two in the afternoon with a cup of tea saying, can we please listen to what we did last night? But at the time it actually was very good because it, it was a bit like having, you know, Mr. Speaker in the Houses of Parliament, you know, they had to go through me, you know, there was no noodling and fiddling around or whatever. And actually, you know, as it's become more democratized, I would say this, but you know, it's it sort of ruins something because there's a focus that is always there because there's always a guy with a key who can make it work. So what we ended up with was 24 reels of two inch tape, which was very expensive. And what I did was I had a big book with every reel of tape on it and I would write what was on that and we would go back and erase and erase and erase and I would do a lot of editing on this album. Like when I, that's the other thing I noticed when I listened to it, I can hear all the edits. I mean, there's a lot of tape editing, a lot of two inch editing, which means the multi-track, means the whole take performance being cut up to make a, an overall performance of the live songs, you know. And I would stick the bits of tape back together and reuse them. So we'd record, keep recording, keep recording. And I managed to do the whole album on 24 reels because that was sort of like another kind of budget constriction, you know. It was a lot of money, you know. So we had our tapes that were numbered 1 to 24. And that's what followed us around when we made the record. So if we went somewhere else to do, at one point we went to Chipping Norton, back to Chipping Norton Studios to do some piano because they had an amazing grand piano and we didn't have one. Uh, so those tapes would go, we'd get there and they'd be there. And that would be when my little red books, so I could go through and find space to do things or else I would know where everything was. You just keep me hanging on. Lou Reed, perfect day. And uh, there is a reason for that, isn't there? Because we're going to play, uh, we're going to play Karma Police uh, off the Radiohead album. Karma Police, when we when we first started playing it, was um, we played it in this very cod uh, scar type of fashion. It sounded like very cod scar, cod scar, yeah. very bad, no doubt, which is which is going some. And the, I mean, for me, uh, I've, I've loved, I always loved um, Transformer. The Lou Reed album, but um, there's just something about that lazy feel on Perfect Day, which just seemed very suitable for, for as an approach for, for Karma Police, well, as, as a starting point anyway. And it's going to be the next single as well, and there sounds like a, there's a, an amazing video to go with it. It's hard, isn't it, with videos? It's like, I mean, the Street Spirit video, which, which, which um, went down well, people who saw it. Um, when we first met the director, he sort of said, well, there's going to be lots of um, nuns on trampolines in this caravan park and um, a horse and a man with a bucket of paint. And, it's, and, and, we, and we said, OK, sounds great. Luckily, it's, it feels like a massive gamble sometimes. So this one, tell us, where is it going to be? In the Fens, in, in Waterland country, I think. Um, uh, uh, you know, at midnight it begins and finishes seven hours later. Just another day in the life, really. <laughs> Karma Police is a... Um, I mean, it's a straightforward, again, it's another one of these songs that was, it's sort of straightforward, which creates a problem because it's then, 
it's not that dynamic. It, needs, it lacks the kind of element of dynamism. So from re- making a definitive, making a record, you have to work out where it's going. One of the ways that you can do it, and one of the tricks of the song, in fact, is the fact that the chorus is completely down. So you try and create a space where it's th- as down as you can get it, you know, and in the way that I did that was to actually record the choruses on a blank bit of tape. So you have the performances of the verses and the breaks and stuff, and then when it gets to the chorus, it's an edit, so nothing. And then we just do the uh, piano and the vocal and the guitar on there. So it, it meant that it was a very clean break and very measured. Caused a few problems in mixing because I could, you could hear the boom because it's quiet, but I go around it. But then again, what you end up with is an outro that's sort of just, it's just an outro. And there was a desire, even though we had a really good one, a desire to somehow just like make it more special. And I remember it was when we went to, um, we went to Chipping Norton for the afternoon to go and record this piano because we needed a nice piano, a nice grand piano to do that. So we're in the studio there. And I remember that Tom and I just basically, I can't understand. It feels so out of character, but we just went to the, we just were like, should we go and get a drink? Um, he and I went to the pub and drank a pint of beer and talked about, a, made a plan for the second half of the song, which is exactly how it happened. And we went back and I sampled the, the verse from the first half into my MIDI sampler and triggered it so that it would be like a multi-track of it. Created a new multi-track. He played the chords. Again, it was one of those things where instead of going up, went down, you know, brought it back, made it kind of like feel lighter. He, he sang through a guitar harmonizer pedal to make the, the beautiful little backing vocals. And, and then Ed put some guitar on it. Colin replayed the bass. And then the end is me feeding back Again, my harmonizing delay, feeding it back, feeding it back, feeding it back, feeding it back, feeding it back. And then at the kind of, the ending is I bend it down, 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 and it goes down. And then you hear me turn it off. There's the crunch. So it gave it a sort of, gave it an arc, the whole thing. And you also get like one of those beautiful things, which is like an accidental lost chord off the end of a a piano take. Which is weird because it's a resolving, it's a kind of nice major resolving little moment but like it's a little bit like the kind of you know the the ringing phone at the end of Andy Warhol on Hunky Dory you know you get these like that's the another wonderful thing about tape is you get accidental little bits of stuff that gets left and they kind of add something you know
Another great thing about working together, all of us, we're always in a room and Tom has this friend known as Stanley Donwood who helps do all the artwork. Tom is a art student and his friend that he met at college, they've done stuff together forever. And um, the Benz was the first time they were kind of given the opportunity to do their own artwork. And I think it was like, okay, this is what we should be doing. And uh, Dan is this amazing character who was with us the whole time, actually. He's the other person who was there. So it was the band, Dan, me, and Plank. Basically, they're in a corner, furiously scribbling on a Wacom tablet whilst something else is going on, you know. But Dan is always there. Dan had a room upstairs, because this is a big house, you know. There's, like, all sorts of places, all sorts of nooks and crannies and rooms everywhere. And Dan is upstairs, and he's writing letters to his dad and getting the mac fred voice to speak them and recording them on cassette and sending them to him because it's the kind of thing dan does he's just sort of like he's just like playing with stuff you know 
Tom goes off to hang out with Dan for a bit just to get away. It's also great because Tom can then like leave the process sometimes. It's good for him to just go and get some headspace and he can go and like do some drawing and like, go and, you know, it's really, really, it worked really, really well. And Dan's always there in the studio with us. So Tom disappears and Dan has been playing us these things that he's been doing. I mean, we we're aware of that happening. And uh, Tom comes down a few hours later and he literally plays us for a happier with the, off the computer and it's like, yeah, it was very, very powerful actually. So that voice became like a, a thing. There was a lot of stuff going on around the Mac and computers and stuff at the time as well. Johnny and I also were kind of like obsessed with like retro gaming. And when I was a kid, I had a BBC Model B and he had a ZX Spectrum and we were sort of like downloading emulators onto each other's computers and stuff. It was kind of funny. Fitter happier though. So it started off, there was this poem written by, you know, spoken by the Fred voice and it just seemed the most emotional kind of performance, you know, this really flat sort of, it just, the words just come over so strong in that tone. It's really, really weird, interesting. And so it's that with, um, Tom had recorded this uh, piano sketch thing at home on his home piano on his dictaphone. I think you can hear somebody doing the washing up in the background. It's just like, it kind of breaks and he loses the plot and whatever. All the electronic stuff is me breaking my harmonizer, uh, just doing all these things that I do with this uh, one particular box that's my favorite kind of sounding broken thing. And then a little sample, this is the Panic Office, from Flight of the Condor. It's a movie that he just like pulled up this little thing from on his one of his mini discs. And then later, Johnny did some strings that we recorded because it seemed like such a kind of, you know, incongruous mix of things, you know. So the computer voice was there knocking around. So when we got to the chorus of Paranoid Android, Tom was like, can you make it say this? Sure. Put it in here. And I was like, okay. Better, happier, more productive, comfortable, not drinking too much, regular exercise at the gym, three days a week. Getting on better with your associate employee contemporaries. At ease. Eating well. No more microwave dinners and saturated fats. A patient better driver. A safer car. Baby smiling in backseat. Sleeping well. No bad dreams. No paranoia. Careful to all animals. Never washing spiders done a plug hole. Keep in contact with old friends. Enjoy a drink now and then. We'll frequently check credit at Moral, bank, hole in wall, favors for favors, fond but not in love, charity standing orders, on Sundays reading road supermarket, no killing lots or putting boiling water on the hands, car wash, also on Sundays, no longer afraid of the dark, only day shadows nothing, so ridiculously too late and desperate nothing, so childish, at a better pace, slower and more calculated, no chance of escape, now self-employed, concerned, but powerless, an empowered and informed member of society, pragmatism not idealism, will not cry in public, less chance of illness, tires that grip in the wet, shot of baby strapped in backseat, a good memory, still cries at a good film, still kisses with saliva, no longer empty and frantic, like a cat, tied to a stick, that's driven into frozen winter shit. The ability to laugh at weakness. Calm, fitter, healthier, and more productive. A pig in a cage on antibiotics.
and it's Radiohead on the evening session. Did you, did you ever get to the stage where um, commercial concerns for your record overtook um, what you were trying to do musically? I mean, not really. I think I mean, it's interesting that when um, when you let the record company know that you're about to do an album, they, they make an estimate that they do in America for how many records they think they're going to sell of your record, having not heard it, but maybe having heard a few things live. And uh, also based on the sales of the previous record. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when they actually finally heard OK Computer, their estimate went down considerably, <laughs> I think. From, I think it was, was it 2 million to 750,000? I suppose because it's not maybe in their eyes laden with singles or something. Certainly, yeah, I think. I think that's that's very true. But you come to you come to make this record then, and um, do you think as a as a unit uh, you're really firing on all cylinders at the moment? Do you do you find you can sort of interact with kind of Tom's lyrics quite well? It, it sometimes scares me. It feels like we're kind of at some sort of you know peak, and it's like this is our good album, and the fourth and fifth it's usually traditionally bands go downhill, which is mildly upsetting. But um, but it does feel we've kind of we've reached a high point in terms of the songs we're writing and how we're recording. Electioneering, I think, um, originally after the Benz, the American label heard demos or live versions of or went to see a show or something and got very, very... Well, the legend is they got very, very excited about electioneering. And when they finally heard the end product, <laughs> they scaled back their predictions, sales projections significantly. So clearly it was not what they had hoped for. I think it's uh it's that's the anachronism on the record really i think it's slightly i don't think it really uh we didn't quite like do our best version of that it ends up being a little bombastic i mean it kicks very hard but uh and i think it is a really good song but it's um the magic moment from that i would say i was just remembering the backing track was just tom and phil at the fruit farm just tom playing his crazy little like super distorted guitar that you can hear on the track in the middle and and phil just doing the takes and watching those guys like you know tom is an incredibly inspiring person to when he's on it and he's trying to get you going he does he's very very good cheerleader and uh it was he really like you know i think they got the energy out there for sure you know i think there was also like a desire to kind of have some moment of rocking rock
Climbing Up the Walls. This is one of these backing tracks that we got in the room at St. Catherine's all together, which was, um, you know, picture the scene, late at night, everyone standing around in a circle. And um, what happened was, it gets to the song about halfway through and explodes. And Tom was playing the acoustic guitar and he'd get to the halfway point and he'd step his foot on the distortion pedal. And this acoustic, which has a pickup in it, an acoustic pickup, not a guitar pickup. It feeds back and wails and makes all this extraordinary noise, which is like really kind of great. And he would get to the end of the song and he would start kind of like shouting into his guitar because you could then hear it through the amp and it would work. And then by the third, we, we did it a few times, I think it's the third take, he just started singing the song into his guitar from the beginning. Instead of playing it, he sang the song into his guitar. So the take has this performance of his voice that's really fuzzy, clearly distorted, and that would like just really glued it all together. And then when it gets to the middle, he like grabs hold of it and starts playing it, you know. So that's the thing that sort of really captured the essence of it. I mean, it really sort of gave it this kind of spooky feel and there's an awful lot of atmosphere bouncing around because of a very kind of, what you have is like an open microphone in the middle of the room. So it's picking up bits of things that are bouncing around. That's what made that backing track work. And I do remember the look on everyone's faces when they walked in after after doing that. I was like, it's pretty, it's a good moment. I mean, the art of recording stuff like that is just, you know, that's what's the beauty, rather. So the beauty of recording stuff like that is when you get everybody in a room, it's all right there. So you kind of paint a picture immediately and it's that's it, it's done. You don't have to sit back and take a million years trying to decide what colour to put that in that corner. It's like, it's just an organic thing. And that's what I know I really respond to is sort of, it's physics. What you're hearing is physics, you know? It's something that's we can't control really, but we can tap into it if we just notice it at the right moment and make sure we're in record, you know? So anyway, I, I thought that was a, I think that worked very well. This is like the other song that had strings on it. So Proto, Johnny Greenwood, you know, his uh, arrangement. And we recorded at Abbey Road afterwards, which really, you know, gave it another elevation. Johnny, I think, you know, Johnny's like a, he's a viola player. He's one of those, you know what I mean? Viola players or not, I mean, he, um, he had always, he, he, you know, he studied music classically trained and he had that ability. And I think it's just another thing. He's just that kind of person that just wants to explore this kind of other avenue of possibility. And, um, so this was a great opportunity to do that. And, uh, it's, again, it's just the kind of do it yourself rather than get somebody in to do it. You just get what you conceive, you know, it's your vision rather than somebody else's. And I think that was very, very positive because it made it more congruent to everything, you know.
Do you, do you ever feel that you're sort of getting too proficient sometimes what you're doing? You have to kind of go and sort of de-learn or...? Not really. I mean, none of us, you know, rehearse or, or do interviews in guitar magazines. So I don't think we're <laughs> in danger of that. I mean, we just... I mean, I mean personally, I sort of change instruments, so... Yeah. I used to do Glockenspiel magazines. <laughs> they have them. OK, that's right. No surprises. And, uh, Colin, you were going to tell us where... Yeah, it was. Uh, we we went on tour with a band called Sparkle Horse, and they're from uh, a place called Bluff, Brimo Bluff, in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, there's a song on their album Beaver Dixie Submarine Transmission Plot, which is all one word. And the song's called Saturday, and uh, it's a very beautiful song, and it has a desperately sad, bittersweet middle eight, which is fantastic. And it was something of the air of sort of simplicity and melody on the Sparkle Horse song and the rest of the album that we wanted to try and capture in uh, our song No Surprises. Basically No Surprises was like one of the sort of flagship important songs we knew we had to get right and in our rehearsal space after setting up and getting the mics right and just getting a few basic levels to try it out just to hear what it sounded like when we recorded something on tape and played it back the first time I ever pressed record on this new, well, new old tape machine that we'd bought secondhand. Ended up being the backing track for No Surprises. It's um, slightly sped up so that when it plays back it's slightly slower, you get an exaggeration of the feel and the drum fills and all this kind of stuff gives it a kind of more kind of, you know, the right atmosphere for the song. And, uh, you know, obviously the Glockenspiel vibe, it's like a very kind of like closed, claustrophobic, dry atmosphere to the whole thing. But really, it was probably like our first triumph, really, in our new recording setup, because it was the first thing that we recorded. N we didn't know this at the time. We went on and we did a whole other version of those surprises that we finished. And uh, what happened was, it was one of those things where, just out of curiosity or by accident, something, we listened back to some early stuff, or I just put on a tape and just played it back, and I was like, ooh, crikey, hold on a minute. You know, it just had some like otherworldly quality that was effortless rather than something that had been sort of painstakingly worked over and brought to fruition. It was just something that was already there because of the way that we were working. I mean, but we just didn't know it at the time.
Lucky came about because of the Help album, which was this uh, record that everybody, bands in England contributed or recorded on the same day, on a Monday, and it was released on a Friday to raise money for War Child because of uh, the awful events that were unfolding in former Yugoslavia. And uh, the band had this song that I had not heard, and I just only really was officially on board for, for producing the next... Well, I mean, I, I was going to do it, you know. This is what was happening. So we were already in the process of building our studio and working out all the kind of logistics of what was going to happen in the future. And just in the meantime, this thing had to happen. So we all piled into the studio. They just had a gig the night before. They rolled off the tour bus, had played it the night before as well. So we're like really kind of on it. And we sort of had this magical afternoon where we just did a couple of takes of the song, nailed it, did a few vocals, a few overdubs, a couple of extra guitar parts and um, mixed it and it was very kind of a fulfilling thing but probably most certainly 100% the fastest uh, realisation of any of these tracks on this album and also probably the one that I think doesn't really sound like it's from this record but fits in but it's like to me obviously because I see it from a perspective of making everything it's uh, from a different place in a weird way. I tried to mix it again but once something is defined so well it's like it's impossible to just didn't work as it just was right it's just what it is so then the, you have the two options one which is to just let it go and be part of another sort of moment which just seemed like a shame because it was strong and you know we all thought it was great so we wanted it to be part of what we were doing
When you came to uh, the end of the record, was it, was it was it physically tiring? Well, I suppose you could say we ended the record with mixing in London, um, which was quite a tiring experience, wasn't it? How many days was it, was it actually recording it then compared to mixing? Was mixing like twice as long as the actual No, we, we, did it, we did it really fast. We were lucky all night. Nigel Godrich is very talented and it's like we did Paranoid Android in half a day, for example. In general, do you feel now that... Um, you can be more, I don't know, relaxed about Radiohead in a way. Not really, I think. Or are you always critical of this? Yeah, horrid, yeah, to a, to a stupid degree, really, I think. Uh, we've just got back from a week in Barcelona, where we were, you know, um, presumably launching the album, and so we had had a lot of press there, and a lot of people record company, and a lot of uh, people from Barcelona who came along to see us, but this, it was just like this level of expectation there. It's just really nerve-wracking. But it is almost like you're supposed to be some sort of superhuman band sometimes when you read some of this stuff. Well, I mean, no disrespect here, but do, do <laughs> you know, you know but, what I mean? But, you know, for, for us, I mean, that, that's the, the biggest build-up we've ever had coming towards, towards a gig. And, I mean, our first show in Barcelona, every single note seemed really fragile. That's just something we've not really experienced before. Your memory of, of, of a period can be defined by the record itself, especially with something like OK Computer, because it has, you know, a very strong flavour to it. And, you know, once you release it, it takes on a life of its own. But I guess my particular angle on it was what I found really fascinating was going through my notebooks at the time and just making friends with whoever this nutter was. Oh, my God. I think I'm bad now. Just pages of, like... Seriously, mate, need <laughs> to take a break. <laughs> we can all sort of look back on that time and feel the positive things that happened and what it meant and how important they were. It's not always comfortable to live your best life in a way, you know, when you're really going full tilt at full steam. It's always challenging. It should be. You know, if it wasn't, it wouldn't be worth anything. There were gnarly moments, but it was just a time of real flourishing and expansiveness and we were listening to different music, like I was listening to Pet Sounds and What's Going On and there was Bitches Brew. So sonically we were getting really influenced by a lot of rich, beautiful sounds. I would say that when you're making a record, and I remember having this opinion at the time and saying it, when you're working on a song sometimes you think, oh this is track two. And that I thought that about Paranoid Android, I'd always thought, oh this is the second song. And actually I think we'd already decided maybe Airbag was the beginning, you know. And then um, The Tourist, I mean, Chronologically, again, it was an early victory in as much as we recorded it at the Fruit Farm. And it was just a beautiful backing track, you know, very simple, straightforward song. But it was, it's like, oh, this is the last song. Feels like the last song. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's, to me, I, hear, I listen, I can hear, I, I literally can hear the room. I can hear that rehearsal room, the big cork room, danger of death on the door. But it has this particular sound to it, and it's very clearly on there. But it's a beautiful, it's just like a meditation, that song, you know. We were all on our game and we were all ambitious and we were unknowing of what was going to happen after that. That's what I hear. I hear, you know, the work of us all together pulling in the same direction and we were just people who were just really working really hard towards something we wanted to do and doing something that we loved. Unknown to us was what was going to happen after that and it was a surprise, I guess. It was a surprise how well it's, it's gone down.
the 